Welcome to the Meta Business Podcast. The Metaverse and Web3 are bringing about the biggest revolution since the internet itself. With your hosts, Paul the Prophet Dawalibi and Jeff the Juice Cohen, we will be bringing you the latest Metaverse business news and insight into what it all means. The Meta Business Podcast starts now. From the boardroom to the Metaverse, this is the Meta Business Podcast. I am Paul Dawalibi. I'm joined today by my friend and co-host, Jeff the Juice Cohen. For those of you who are new here, welcome to the official podcast of the Metaverse. What we do is we cover the most interesting topics and stories from the week, but we look at all of it through a business and C-suite lens. We dissect, we analyze the business implications of everything happening in this amazing industry. For those of you who are new here, welcome. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Go on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen to this, hit the subscribe or follow button. It'll alert you when a new episode drops. Uh, and leave a review. If you love the content, leave a review, five-star rating and review. It really helps others to find the podcast. Jeff, how you doing this week? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, not, not as good as last week. You know, at this time last <laughs> week, you were scrambling around the office trying to assemble the studio so we yeah. could record our live stream, which we do uh, after we record this that everyone should should of course check out but yeah you were scrambling around <laughs> trying to set it up because we Lindsay, our other co-host uh you know on the business of esports live stream and i uh surprised paul and showed up at his office basically last minute and said <laughs> hey let's uh record this all in person so paul scrambled around for about an hour while Lindsay and i ate pizza and then we <laughs> got it done and it was awesome it was a lot of fun i will say i got to admit it, in the moment it wasn't fun scrambling but it, the end result was fun. And I've got so much feedback from viewers saying like it was the most fun podcast. It was so much more like animated and like everyone was more aggressive, right? Because when you're in the same room, there's, there's not this physical barrier. Um, it definitely was a lot of fun. I will say, um, you know, for those, if, if, you, if you're a fan of this podcast, maybe you discovered this because you're, you know, an enthusiast around what's going on around the metaverse or you're looking to learn. Um, we also do this other podcast called the business of esports, which you should go check out, which is more gaming focused, gaming and esports focused, uh, and meta woman, which, uh, is a, is a podcast focused entirely on highlighting and elevating women, uh, within the gaming and metaverse industry. So definitely go check out, subscribe to all three meta business, meta woman and business of esports. I promise you will love all the content. Um, Jeff, let's, let's jump into some news here because I think. There's, I love when we've gotten to the point here where we're starting to get some recurring themes, right? And some, some discussion that I think gets deeper and deeper every time we revisit, but also just some cool news stories. And, and I liked, I think we always try and start with, with a fun story. And this one, obviously you flagged this caught my eye. Um, big, big name in metaverse news and a very big headline. And the headline here is, Manchester City to build Etihad Stadium in the metaverse. So the celebrated soccer team has begun the initial stages of building its iconic home stadium in the metaverse so fans can be part of live and recorded matches around the world. Um, They're going to build this virtual replica of their stadium, Etihad Stadium. It'll be the team's central hub in the metaverse. Uh, They signed a three year agreement with Sony, who's going to provide. It says virtual reality to experts to use image analysis and skeletal tracking technology. So 
uh, fans should be able to enjoy games and watch games in this what they call immersive metaverse setting. Um, I will just read the quote because I think it's interesting. The quote here uh, from the chief marketing officer at Man City says, the whole point we could imagine of having a metaverse is you can recreate a game. You could watch the game live. You're part of the action in a different way through different angles, and you can fill the stadium as much as you want because it's unlimited. It's completely virtual. Where would you rank? So I feel like we're going to need some kind of of ranking system, like a board, right? Where this is like pure metaverse and like on one end of the scale and on the other end of the scale, it's sort of like not the fake metaverse is the wrong term, but like a small step and a big step metaverse, right? Yeah. Where are you putting this? And is this just glorified VR that we're calling metaverse? Like, do you like this? Um, Curious your thoughts. Yeah, I I'm on the fence here and you know, I hate to do this and and play sort of both sides because I am, I am the juice and I like to have this persona (laughs) where, you know, regardless of how strong I actually feel, I like to, go all in on one side or the other, usually just whichever side the opposite of you know, the person <laughs> who just spoke is. I'm Mr. Mr. Devil's Advocate in that way. But I'll sort of give, give both sides here. I mean, on one hand, I, I like the fact that A, they're experimenting with this. I think you know, whenever you're a brand and you're getting into a new space and you're innovating, cool. I think that's we should be supporting that. We should be applauding that. I also like the fact that it's adding accessibility, right? If you're Man City and... Or is this Man City or Man... Yeah, uh, Man, Man City. City. So, you know, if you're a team like Man City and you have literally hundreds of millions of fans around the world, many, many, many of them have never been and probably will never get the opportunity to go to your amazing cathedral of a stadium. With the metaverse, you now give them the opportunity to do that. Maybe it increases fanhood. They go and now they want to buy a jersey because they went and felt like they were really part of the team. So from that respect, I like it. It's cool. It's accessible. It's forward thinking. What I don't like about it is pretty much everything else um, and kind of <laughs> what you just talked about where it, I don't know, it's just, it's a novelty thing and, and maybe people do it once and it, it's a cool thing to have done, but I don't see this as replacing the experience of going to a football stadium in real life. And I don't even think it's particularly exciting in the sense of it, it doesn't seem to me to be bringing more to the table. When we're, one of the things we've always come back to when we're talking about the metaverse and digital worlds is we're always somewhat bearish about creating real world experiences in digital space. I get that the metaverse will have aspects of that, but there's just something that's not that exciting about walking around a digital shopping mall or a digital supermarket or a digital soccer stadium because we can do those things in real life. One of the great things about games is you can do and experience things that you can't do in real life. So put me in the action. Make me the the view of the ball make me you know fly above the stadium in a you know in a, a helicopter or something like those are the kinds of things that i think would be more interesting to me but yeah i mean that's kind of both sides where, where do you fall yeah i i mean i'm curious uh, i was going to say the same thing about flying over it's funny you said that but like i'm curious how true like this replica is going to be because they talk about they're taking dimensions of the stadium the whole bit like does that mean some people will actually have to sit in the bleachers, right? Like, like will, will everyone be able to occupy the best seat in the house or are they going to fill this metaverse version of their stadium the same way they fill the physical version? And some people are going to have good seats and some 
are going to have horrible seats. Like I'm trying to put like this scale together where um, one is like um, I'm put on VR goggles to go shopping at Walmart in virtual reality. Right. That's like we'll call it how metaversy is something right. The Mm -hmm. metaversy scale. You've got one which is shopping at Walmart in VR on one end. So basically doing experiences you do in real life, but just in a virtual world. Right. And like 10 is, and it's not just replicating a virtual, like real life, like the most mundane of real life experiences, right? Like shopping at Walmart. Um, And 10 would be like uh, the Oasis from Ready Player One, right? Like something like that. So, you know, you've got this, how metaversy is something. Where would we, where would we put this? It feels a little bit like a two or three, maybe, right? Um, Depending on the execution. I just think it's such a miss to your point, right? Like where's the flying above the play. And, and I would argue why, if we're making the audience, if we're putting the audience in the metaverse, why not the players too, right? Like, why don't we put them on omnidirectional treadmills with VR headsets and they're no longer playing in real life. They're playing in a virtual, you know, metaverse also. Why, why are we limiting this to just the, the people in attendance and, and, and watching? It doesn't go far enough. I think this, you know, on this scale, anything below a five feels like we're not moving the ball forward. We're not, you know, this is sort of a brand activation more than actually getting us closer to capital T, capital M metaverse, the metaverse, right? I would agree with that. Um, it, it's funny, though, because Man City, uh, you know, soccer. What, what do you think was the impetus for Man City to do this, right? You're in, the, you're in the boardroom at Man City. Is it just, is this a marketing exercise, you think? I think it is. And I actually, as you were scrolling, I, I caught, I think it looked like they had a sponsorship with Tezos, uh, the blockchain company. So, you know, we, as we know, there's a ton of overlap between sports fans, blockchain enthusiasts, and people who are interested in the metaverse, kind of, of you know, all three of them kind of interlap, overlap a ton. I said interlap, that's not even a word. Um, so yeah, they have this partnership with, with Tezos. So, and well, it know. was, it was actually Manchester United that had the Tezos partnership that they mentioned, which is their rival. Right. So maybe they um, wanted to, maybe they wanted to one up the rival then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which it seems like they did because this is way cooler than just a simple partnership. But I think you're right. Like it doesn't hurt anyone. Right. And there is an accessibility play here of getting more fans you know, some people may say, does that mean it will cannibalize the real life version, right? If we replicate real life experiences in the metaverse one for one, is there cannibalization that's going to happen with the real life experience? That's a good question. I mean, I think the answer would be no, um, at least at this stage. I think what you're doing is expanding. You know, it's like saying, hey, basketball games are on TV. Does that mean that people never want to go to basketball games again? And in some instances, maybe it cuts down demand a little bit, but overall it grows the pie in terms of people viewing the sport and overall, do- you know, these are for-profit companies, you know, overall dollars that come to the team, or the organization are clearly higher, you know, having the broadcast right. So I think it, it would be very similar to that. In the sense that it grows the amount of people that it can engage with your fans or sorry. Your yeah. brand. Um, all right, let's move on. Let's talk about, um, uh, Dapper Labs in the news, and I think this is an interesting story. It's the headline here. Uh, 
I've never thought I would see this word actually in a headline, especially from a pretty mainstream magazine like Fast Company. It says, how Dapper Labs is making Web3 safe for normies with help from the NBA, UFC, and La Liga. The pioneering, pioneering company behind CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot won't rest until 3 billion people are customers. Um, so basically, this is talking about, I'll just summarize. It's a bit of a puff piece, but they're talking about how Dapper Labs, who's the company behind CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot, is really focused on making Web3, specifically the buying of NFTs, so much more accessible for, call it what they call normies, like just normal everyday people who aren't hardcore crypto enthusiasts or hardcore techies. And the idea is they want to introduce the idea of collecting these scarce digital assets to millions or billions of people, right? That's, that's part of the vision for the company. Um, do you buy this, Jeff? Like, do you, do you think this is a reasonable approach to the sector? Um, 100%. I, I mean, hundred. I think, I think when you think about it, you know, whether they will eventually ultimately be successful is up in the air. You could argue they already have been. I mean, one of the, in the last year, one of the most successful, if not the most successful kind of NFT projects or NFT things has been, was NBA Top Shot. You know, it brought probably several million people into the ecosystem that were sort of first time crypto, you know, engagers, if you will. Um, Now, a big part of that was the fact that they, you know, and they even say in the article, one of the things I thought was pretty interesting was that in the branding for NBA Top Shot, they didn't really emphasize crypto. They didn't really emphasize the blockchain. It was sort of, hey, this is an easy user experience. You can use a credit card. You can buy these things with that. You don't need to create five different wallets and stuff and, and stuff like the user experiences for many NFT games. Um, you know, that just creates a really frictionful experience and that people generally um, you know, tap out of. I think they even said there was some place in the article, maybe you could search for it, where they were talking about how. At one point, there was only 2% of people that were trying to buy items were able to buy items. Maybe it was when they had their prior game, CryptoKitties, um, basically highlighting when you have a bad user experience, you know, you, you basically, you lose a lot of people within that. Um, maybe you could read that book. Yeah, no, the quote is, we were seeing close to a 2% conversion rate from someone clicking on, I want this cat to being able to buy the cat, which is um, so that was their prior game. So they were the people behind Crypto Kitties, which you know was was really the first big NFT launch back in 2017. That effect, I think at one point they were like 30 percent of the usage on on the Ethereum blockchain was Crypto Kitties, which is just insane. But the the quote here is saying how the conversion rate from people who said, "Yeah, I w- I want to buy this cat," to actually buying it was two percent, which is you know wow. anyone who knows e-commerce shockingly bad. Like that, yeah, that's horrible and that's because you needed to download a metamask wallet you needed to put cash you know ether into that wallet then you'd have to buy it so what they did with the flow blockchain is you know it's they have a non-custodial or a custodial wallet so people don't need to kind of control the crypto themselves which is something that many crypto enthusiasts i know have pushed back on the flow blockchain which is the blockchain that um, dapper labs has built themselves and which is what um nba top shot is built off of and they're now trying to get you know more games and companies to build upon. Um, I know that was a, a problematic thing for many like hardcore crypto people, but for normies, quote unquote normies, as this article said, I think that that's a really important part of the equation. Um, so yeah, I think I think the mission is the right mission. 
I think it's the right way to go about it. And, and to some extent, they've already succeeded. It will be interesting to see what sort of the follow-up is with Top Shot because you know, the, volu- the GMV volumes in terms of um, secondary trading market for that game have gone down, call it 90% from the peak. So it's definitely you know, tailed off. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they follow it up with. It's a, it's a fascinating story that 2% statistics really telling I, definitely points to a, an accessibility problem, right? Like an ease of use user experience problem. I think the issue I have with these stories, this theme of story is it feels like user experience and accessibility has become a crutch for people in this industry. Like it, it's the, it's the distraction. If we only solve the user experience and the accessibility, billions will be buying NFTs and, and, you know, uh, four second clips of people doing a dunk and right. Like it's only because it's complicated that we don't, we only have a few million, right? Like if it was only easier, we could get billions and billions of people. And I, I, my frustration is this crutch takes away from having a legitimate conversation around what is the true size of this market, right? For pure digital collectibles, which is what Dapper Labs does, right? There, I don't think there's any utility to any of these so, things. It's sorry, so, there, so I was going to say, and sorry to cut you off. I mean, they, so right now, I mean, NBA Top Shot is pure digital collectibles, but one of the things they're trying to do, and a lot of, you know, it's kind of ties into, you know, Web3 gaming is they're, they're trying to build like either a fantasy sports platform or something where you could then use some of these things in games. And the question I was going to pose to you is like, how realistic is that? Can you do that without just making it be entirely pay to win? Like, do you think that's an ecosystem where like does fantasy sports work when you can own the assets? It kind of inherently becomes pay to win. I think, I mean, I could just buy all the best players. No. And then, uh, uh, I mean, this is a problem with that whole space in its entirety, but like, I, I just, I want to come back to the, the fact that we lose sight of, Maybe there are other variables here, right? And because everyone has zeroed in on, you know, and everyone thinks they're very clever and I hear at all these, you know, panels and whatever. Oh, it's a user experience. It's, you know, uh, and the MetaMask thing is always the one people go to, right? It's like MetaMask. So I kind of feel bad for the guys at MetaMask. They're literally the industry punching bag for like describing something complicated. Maybe there are other issues, like maybe 3 billion people don't want you know, a virtual basketball card, like maybe they don't want that. And, and so are like, and maybe, maybe they do. I'm not, I'm not taking one side or the other. It's just the crutch here allows everyone to avoid the conversation of, you know, are there other underlying, are there demand problems? Like, is there not enough benefit to the end user? Is that benefit not communicated clearly enough? Right? Like there's all kinds of other potential business issues that stops you from getting to that 3 billion kind of owner mark that aren't related to co- like complication of the platform. I agree. I mean, I, I do agree on that. And I, I don't think that 3 billion people will want, you know, to buy digital collectibles. Um, but I think the hope is, well, I know it, you know, from the article and just in general, I think it's, Hey, you know, 3 billion people coming into this ecosystem and there will, you know, some of them will want digital collectibles. Some will want digital art. Some will want digital games. Some will want, you know, fantasy sports on the blockchain. Some will want betting on the blockchain. Some will want, you know, yada, yada, yada. I, I think that's the, that's the vision. 
and and I do like, the, you know, you, what you are saying is correct that accessibility is it is necessary but not sufficient. Like something could be super accessible and the greatest user experience in the world, but if it's not interesting and not fun as an entertainment product, it, it doesn't matter like at all. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask maybe a stupid question because I, I I consider myself the dumb one on this here. Like, what what is the si- total addressable size of this market for something like NBA Top Shot? Right? Would it not just be the total addressable market size of basketball trading cards? Like, why why why? What is the strength of the argument that says? more people will care to buy this than care to buy physical trading cards. I think I'm struggling to find a really great example. I feel like, like uh, the nature of being digital, but there are plenty of examples. I feel like that things went from analog to digital and the market size was way bigger, you know, than people expect. Like you could say, Hey, you know, at the end of the day, like strategy games are really just board games. Like why, why is mobile strategy like a, $50 $50 billion category when like, you know, board games are like a bit, we're, we're never bigger than a billion. So I, I think it's hard True. to always make that analogy, but I definitely see. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on here. We've got, um, uh, an interesting fundraising story here. And then actually let, let before we get to the fundraising story, this one is sort of a recurring theme of NFT marketplaces piggybacking on nostalgia, I guess. I, I don't know what the, what the play is here, but this is LimeWire in the news. And I guarantee like 80% of our audience probably has no clue what LimeWire is. That makes me, that's literally the oldest I've ever felt. (laughs) But the headline here, LimeWire is back as an NFT marketplace. It's again, and look at the sub headline. It's designed to cater to folks who don't have any crypto. So, uh, LimeWire, which was, um, you know, at the call it early, Days of the Internet was a name that was very well recognized, right? Focused on music and, you know, streaming music, um, mostly illegally, if I remember correctly. Um, it didn't but, feel illegal, but it yeah. was. Um, they're coming back as an NFT marketplace. They're relaunching as a main, what they call, I'm quoting here, mainstream ready digital collectibles marketplace for art and entertainment, initially focusing on music. So the backers believe it'll be a place for artists and fans to create and sell digital trinkets without the technical hurdles of the current NFT marketplace. Obviously, they want to target this at musicians and NFT newbies. Um, and uh, they're, they're using this, I guess, nostalgic brand. You know, we saw we talked about the GameStop one. How do you rank this against so- that if you do? Or what are the thoughts on? a hundred more marketplaces banking on nostalgia. So my, my first thought is that I, I don't really understand why they're, they're going after kind of non crypto enthusiasts, because if I were to think, you know, just about LimeWire, I mean, it was a peer to peer file sharing technology. It was a little bit in the gray, you know, like the, the dark web gray area to some extent, like I have to imagine that there's a pretty big overlap between people who use LimeWire very actively and people who are into crypto um, just feels like it's that kind of, you know, computer, you know, dark web type type people, um, or at least early adopters of crypto. I mean, that's obviously not the case more. Um, so that that part was a little bit confusing to me. But um, I had thought I was going to hate this same way I hated GameStop one. And I still do think I hate this one. 
but I think it's interesting that they're focused. Like, I think we had a long discussion about kind of my view on verticalization and how you know all these NFT markets were eventually going to going to splinter into kind of verticalized deep marketplaces. So I kind of like the fact that they're focusing on music, and then if you play it through, LimeWire has a brand in music. So you know, to some extent, could they be the the NFT marketplace for music? I think I could buy that. If, if, if we have the three, we had Blockbuster, we had GameStop and this one, I think I was fairly bullish on GameStop relatively. Blockbuster, no, that was just a pure nostalgia play. I don't really get it. This one, I think I could see, you know, the music argument makes a little sense. Where it breaks down for me, though, is why would someone buy an NFT of music? Like, we kind of moved past buying music, right? Like, everything's streamed now. I'm not <laughs> sure who wants to buy digital music like it, it's sort of like we that business model was correct 20 years ago if 20 years ago you were selling nfts of digital music like maybe i could see that being a better you know proposition for consumers like i, I just don't know if there's a market for buying digital music at this point it could be music related art uh, that but this like does this make you more convinced of this like vertical verticalization of these NFT marketplaces? Like, are you more and more convinced that the end result, the, 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 you know, if we fast forward five years, there's, you know, two or three dozen big NFT marketplaces that all are massively sort of focused on one vertical, whether it's music or game or whatever, yeah. like, I'm very, I'm, I'm highly convicted on that. The only reason that why I have a little bit of a pause is that we're sort of going through the whole evolution in like fast forward, where normally it's like the market starts small, you have one massive aggregator, like the open sea becomes this dominant behemoth, which it sort of has, it has a massive amount of market share in NFTs, but we're so early in the game, like it feels like it needs to like become more of a behemoth before it splinters off and, and, and gets niched. Um, yeah. But I do think that that's where this is headed. I mean, you just have to look at what happened with eBay, Craigslist. Like, there's, you know, whole VC funds have been created around like the the splintering of Craigslist and all the different platforms that have been spawned off the back of that. So, I, I do think that's where this is headed, and it's probably not a controversial take. That's why a lot of these things are getting funded. I'm sure there's plenty of VCs that have the same thesis. But yeah, yeah, uh, you know, there's it feels like there's going to be some consolidation, right? I don't know if there's enough space for every single one of these very, you know, highly niche, uh, markets. And, and I, again, I worry about the intersection of the people who know the LimeWire brand and the ones who care to buy music related NFTs. I, I I'm a little concerned that those two in the Venn diagram, those two circles, while they do intersect, the intersection may be small. Um, because even I like, Obviously, I remember the the name LimeWire, um, and I was around when it was popular. You know, Napster days, Kazaa, all those kinds of you know programs. Um, but it doesn't like say much to me. I don't get warm and fuzzy feelings from the brand that makes me absolutely want to go there. So it's an interesting play. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Um, but um, let's let's go to our last story here. Um, Jeff, and this is a, this is a big raise, really big raise and at a huge valuation. And the headline from Coindesk is NFT platform immutable raises 200 million at $2.5 billion valuation. 
it was the round was led by the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, Tomasic, uh, and most of the funding is going to be used for global expansion. Now, there were other participants in the round. I'll just name some of them. Uh, Mirai Asset, Parify Capital, Declaration Partners, Tencent Holdings, uh, a name we know well from the gaming space, obviously. And Immutable raised money just back in September. So uh, that would have been, what, like six months ago? Um, at, at a $410 million valuation. So more than 5X, 6X, right? 6X increase in valuation in six months. And um, that was a $60 million raise. So, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars raised, massive increase in the valuation. They develop two popular uh, NFT games, according to this article, Gods Unchained and Guild of Guardians. I don't play either. Uh, but they also created Immutable X, which is a layer two NFT infrastructure platform for businesses to build games, marketplaces, and applications. Here's my question for you. This is primarily sort of a blockchain-based gaming play. Their, their platform and infrastructure play, I, I'm sure the VCs and the investors in this were, were very interested in that. But all we have to go on today, I think, is are these two games that they have out. Where, like, I feel like AAA game studios building games for PCs that are massively multiplayer, AAA graphics, right? Like, would struggle to spend, and I'm exaggerating, but would struggle to spend $200 million, right, on a game. Where does Immutable put all this capital, right? Because these are relatively simple games in the grand scheme of game development. Where does all this go in your mind, Jeff? That, that's what worries me here. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a conundrum. There's so much capital flowing into the space. I mean, I imagine most of that goes to building the infrastructure, building out their, their you know, blockchain solution or literally their blockchain. I, I do know they also were the ones actually that I think GameStop partnered with. Um, you know, to do sort of what they're doing. So uh, there, there's a little bit deeper than just, you know, some of these games. Uh, also, I think that God's Unchained, even though I haven't played it, I do know it's, I think it's one of the more popular kind of of these NFT games. So maybe they do have, have some sort of secret sauce here in terms of they're going to be the winning platform uh, to build games on. I know there's, you know, we, we, every week we seem to be talking about a different blockchain, whether it's, you know, Flow from Dapper Lab, Solana, or, um polygon which which obviously hired ryan wyatt former head of youtube gaming and kind of a gaming luminary so there's a lot of people going after this same prize i would love to you know to understand a little better maybe this is a homework assignment for me but just what the value proposition is for developers on each of these different blockchains um because they can't all win right we're not eventually i think you know there will be a one or two maybe standards and if you think of these, and, and maybe this isn't even the right analogy, but as like almost gaming engines or game or gaming platforms, there's not that many out there. You know, if we think about traditional gaming, right? You have Unity, you have Unreal on the engine side. Maybe there's two or three others that sort of have a small bit of market share. And then on the the kind of platform side, you have obviously the consoles, you have VC, and then you have kind of mobile. Like, does blockchain be just become like that fifth or fourth platform? And then if it is, like, is there room for 10 of them? Is there room for three of them? Is there room for two of them? Is there room for one of them? I don't have a great 
view or thesis on that. It's something I have to do more thinking or work on. I'm curious if, if you have a formula. Opinion. <sighs> I feel like there are more platforms than there are actual games or applications <laughs> for these platforms. <laughs> there are literally, if you look at the, the ecosystem right now, you have more choice. If you're a developer of blockchain based games, there are more, you have more choice in terms of platform than competition in terms of games. And, and I feel like at some point we reach saturation and, and at some point we need to see $200 million. And, and we've seen raises, right? Game developers raising huge amounts of money to build blockchain based games or play to earn games. But where are the games, right? Like lots of interesting platforms. Where are the great games? seems to that that piece of the equation still is very much missing in my mind. And so I'm a little worried, right? That everyone's building these fabulous palaces with no one to live in them. Um, and, and they're very expensive palaces, right? This two and a half billion dollar valuation. I don't know how you justify a six times increase other than maybe competitive pressure to get into the deal. If you're an investor, like, Where's the justification that this company has increased six times over six months, right? What have they done in six months to justify that massive increase when, again, they're not the only game in town. There are other platforms that do exactly this, and it's not like there's 10,000 developers all wanting to make games, and there's just so much demand for these platforms. Um, I, I would rather see the games drive sort of some of the, the news around these platforms, right? I want to see a big successful game say we used immutable um, and you should too, right? Like in the same way with Roblox, you get these stories of, you know, this 16 year old developer is making like 300 grand a month. I just don't see that as much here. And I assume that's because it's not happening. Um, but that that's, you know, that's where I have concerns. I think it's also just it means, you know, blockchain based games, play to earn games are here to stay. When you have this much money invested at these kinds of high valuations, you know, something like Immutable is not going anywhere tomorrow. Um, there's real conviction that the ecosystem is going to fill out and people will develop for this platform. So, I think yeah, your point is a good one. I think it, it does highlight to me probably just how early we are. and. You know, you and I, we've been talking about this for, for a number of months, but it's still, you know, to use the, the tried and true, you know, famous baseball example. I don't even think we're in the first inning here. Like we, we haven't even gotten to the starting line of the race. And, and maybe that's what it is. But the question I guess posed back to you is when does it really become concerning? I think, you know, this all, let's call it the last year really started getting hyped up. Then you had the VCs notice they start funding these things. Then these things start. You know, I, I think a lot of this money will probably go to developers, right? So all these blockchains have effectively VC arms. They're funding developers. It is a great time to be a blockchain gaming developer. You, yeah. you know, name your price. I mean, it's just insane. But then these guys have to go make a game, which in AAA world, that could take two or three years. This is obviously not going to be that. So maybe it's called a year. But when do we, my point is there's a lot of lead time. So when do we really start getting concerned where it's like, hey, there's a hundred of these games actually coming out not white papers not discord servers like real games that people are playing and it's just like this stuff isn't very good like when where are we on that curve well so you're i like your baseball analogy so let me run with it if we're in the first inning 
what has happened is we're in the first inning and everyone has built massive stadiums, right? Like everyone has just built these most palatial, massive stadiums, but there's no one in the seats yet. Right. And so by the second, third inning, if there's no one in the seats, you might go, okay, you know, no big deal, slow burn, right? Like if we're halfway through the game and there's no one in the seats, I think this is when you start to worry. What is that in terms of years? I think you have to look at sort of a game life cycle, right? So what's the average time to develop a triple A game? I don't know, three years, maybe four years, something like that these days, right? It's getting longer and longer. Let's say it's three years. If in three years, we don't have a Fortnite type breakout blockchain based game or play to earn game. If we don't have that level of hit, I think in three, four years, then I think alarm bells need to start ringing. Hunter, well, that's a lot more runway than I thought. I thought you were going to give it like months. Like I was thinking no. like, like a quarter or two, like three, four I mean, years. Yeah. I mean, if we don't have a hit and then yeah, like go home, like it's over. Yeah. I thought like, I was thinking about the summer. <laughs> I mean, I can almost guarantee that will not happen. Like that to me, those short term, like it's just, there's nothing on the horizon that makes me believe they have figured out how to make fun games given the constraints of blockchain based or play to earn games. Like I am not convinced at all that it's even possible yet. Um, and so in the short term, I just don't think anyone's going to figure it out in the long term. I might argue that people are going to figure it out. I just, um, you know, when people say like, if you said by the summer, I would take that bet all day long, like no chance by the summer. Um, that, um, that's our time. Jeff, um, flies by as always, just a quick reminder, uh, to our listeners, make sure you subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review. If you love the podcast, tell your friends, send it to your friends, even better, uh, share the link with them so they can enjoy the podcast as well. We really appreciate you guys tuning in every week, Jeff. Thank you as always. And we will see you all next week. Thanks for joining us here on Meta Business. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts, leave a five-star review and tell your friends, family and colleagues all about us. Also, make sure to follow Meta TV on all socials to get more of the best Metaverse content anywhere. Tune in every week for another episode of Meta Business.